when we are evangelizing, when we are witnessing for Jesus Christ, what are we to tell people? One of the marks of a healthy church is a biblical understanding of the gospel, a biblical understanding of this evangel. And that's why a lot of times you might hear the word evangelical. So what does it mean to be an evangelical these days? You ever wondered what that means? Well, for many, the term evangelical, unfortunately, has been robbed of its uh, distinctive meaning that it once carried, and that's understandably so. I don't know how much you know about church history, but back in the 1940s, yeah, way back in the 1940s, if you joined ranks with the evangelicals, what you were doing is you were actually distinguishing yourself from other groups of Protestants. Well, you might wonder what a Protestant is. Well, you got to go even back farther in church history to the Reformation period. A Protestant was someone who's protesting. What were they protesting? Well, it was the rubbish that was going on in the, the church at that time. The Roman Catholic system had got it wrong. They had bad theology. Didn't understand the gospel. So there was a protest against that, and so... There were the, all these various groups of Protestants came from that time period. But there's been all kinds of splits, if you will, within Protestantism. And so there was a changing of the times. And, and particularly around the 1940s, with the changing of the times, there's come a, a blurring of lines. It's kind of like somebody, uh, like my children, getting out their, uh, their, their chalk you know, the, you know, you see these kids ever get out these big pieces of chalk and they write on the footpaths or their, their driveways, and sometimes the kids can, can, can get out there and they'll start making stuff with their chalk, and sometimes, you, particularly after rain, you wonder, well, what in the world were they trying to make? Because the rain has blurred lines. There's no longer clear distinctions. And that's exactly what happened in church history. The rising popularity of the ecumenical movement produced the theological minimalism boy that's hard to say excuse me minimalism and and as a result of that it watered down the gospel and people were trying to uh trying to get along with one another the 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 big word was unity and so truth was kind of thrown out the window so what is an evangelical then well, a straight answer is difficult really to produce for a lot of people. By the very origin of the word, we can tell that an evangelical is someone who has identified themselves with the evangel. You see that word? Evangel. The gospel is what the evangel is, the good news of Jesus Christ. But what exactly is that evangel? We need to be crystal clear on this, folks. If we're not if we don't have a biblical understanding of the evangel, of the, the good news of the gospel, then there's no possible way we could be a healthy church. So what exactly is the evangel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ according to the Bible? Not according to man's wisdom, our philosophies, not according to the books and so forth, not according to the so-called experts. What does the Bible say? We want to know what God says, right? So I encourage you, pull up a chair, and we're going to sort through this together. One of the things you need to understand is that when we're asking what the gospel is, what is this evangel, we are asking an ultimate question, a very, very important question. We're not simply dealing with hobby horses, or we're not just dealing with hermeneutics. This isn't about just you know, how do we interpret the Bible? We're making assumptions and assertions on worldview levels here. In other words, what I'm saying is we're making a case for a story that's covering all the other stories in reality. We're trying to make a case of our world by viewing it from a certain vantage point. We're, we're looking through certain lenses here, like somebody who wears glasses. They, they have to look through their lenses, right? Well, that's, that's what we're doing here. And you need to understand there's, there's three basic questions that any religious worldview is going to use 
And, and this is, if you will, it's like their glasses, their contact lenses, their, their eyeballs that they're, they're looking through. Okay, So let's just think about this for a moment, because we're going to come back to at least one of these. The, the first basic question is this. What is the nature of the religious ultimate? What is ultimate? Well, uh, one of those qu- questions that would need to be addressed is, who is God? Who is God? Who is your God? And, by the way, of what does ultimate spiritual existence consist? There's all kinds of ideas on that in these various religions in our world. Number two, what is the nature of the human predicament? uh, As humanity, we have a massive predicament that we're in. What is wrong with us? There's something wrong with us. Socialists and... Uh, you know, people who study humanity and, and psychology and psychiatry and all this sort of stuff try to figure that out, but if, if they're not using God's Word, the Bible, unfortunately they're going to come up with the wrong answers. What's wrong with us? Well, God's Word addresses that. Number three, what's the solution to our human predicament? What are we to do, to do about not being as good as we should be? <laughs> we... You know, a lot of people want to be good. They don't like all the, the terrorism and the stuff in our world. We want world peace, and we want, we want to solve the problems of humanity. And unfortunately, a lot of times we go about it all the wrong ways. Well, the Bible presents clear answers to each one of those three questions. And all are wrapped up in the gospel message. So we want to make sure we get the gospel right. The gospel is not something that should be ignored. It's not something that should be assumed. It's something that we should constantly come back to to make sure we're getting it right, that that we're not assuming it. We're not assuming it with our children, our grandchildren. We're not assuming it with ourselves. We corporately, it's dangerous to do so. So it's often helpful to look at this in a negative and then look at it positively. So let me quickly... Let's think about this negatively. What the gospel is not. Number one, the gospel is not just simply saying we are okay. You ever heard people say that there's everybody has a spark of divinity within them. You're, you're a good person. That's why I love when, when, I, when I walk up, particularly to unbelievers, I love telling them, you know, particularly if they ask me, hey, you know, how you doing? I love telling them, I'm better than I deserve. Because often people will respond, particularly under believers, you know, they want to argue with my statement. Oh, no, 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 you're you're a good person. I'm sure you're a good person. They don't really know me, but often they, you're a good person. Everybody's good, right? Not. And many people think our biggest problem is, well, what? What's being pushed in our schools, in the school systems? You'll get a hint of it up on the wall up there. That's the sort of stuff, and as well as other stuff. And one of the things you, you, you might hear is, well, our greatest problem is, is it's small self-esteem, low self-esteem. That's our problem, right? That's why our teenagers are committing suicide. That's why our farmers commit suicide. That's why we have all these problems. Well, what's wrong with that statement? There's a presupposition there. There's a preconceived idea. The presupposition behind this view is actually unbiblical. You you try to find low self-esteem in the Bible. Go for it. Try to find it. Look in a concordance. You won't find it. It's not there. That's actually a secular term. And and this secular definition of the human problem is presupposing something. It's presupposing that I should esteem myself better because... You know, deep down in my heart, I'm really a good person. In fact, I'm better than I think I am. You're better than you think you are. That's that's what you're being told. That's the lie you're being pushed. And so this self-esteem gospel answers a worldview question, one of those worldview questions, differently than actually what how God would define it and how God would say it, how God answers it in the Bible. And so what is the nature of the human problem according to the Bible? Let's, let's start in Romans chapter 3. Please turn in your Bibles. I invite you to look at the words of the living God. He is alive and well. 
He's the one who's written these words for us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He certainly knows you better than the psychologist or the sociologist. Look what he has to say. Look what God says, Romans 3, verse 10. Verse 10. As it is written, this is a, these are all quotes from the Old Testament here. Verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We'll just stop there, we could keep going. But you get the point, I hope. There is no spark of divinity within everyone. You are not good. In fact, you are very bad. I'm very bad, okay? I'm I'm talking about me too here. We are bad. So what is humanity's biggest problem? Well, it's not low self-esteem. According to what God says, humanity and your biggest problem is simply sin. Well, then we have to define sin, don't we? Because people define sin differently. Uh, you could go talk to all sorts of people and get all kinds of answers on this. Well, according to God, it's in the Bible you can find this definition. It's just tra- it's a transgression of His law. You broke if you break God's law, then you've sinned. And so, sin does not just make my heart desperately sick. The Bible does say that, but it also kills you. It actually kills you. The Bible says that I was, according to Ephesians 2, dead in my trespasses and sin. And as a result of that, I earned something. I earned as a pay, my paycheck for my sin was death. For my disobedience to God was that my, my paycheck was death. And so our sin has actually shut us up to spiritual death. And it's an eternal separation from God. And so if we omit sin from our preaching and if we omit sin then from our evangelism, we're actually preaching a different gospel. And if we do that, then we need to repent of our sin, of, omit it, of omitting sin, and then we need to preach God's truth. Number two, we're talking about what the gospel's not. The gospel is not simply that God is love. Okay, he's... Where are these things coming from? Well, these are, these are things that even, even people who claim to be Christian believe these things. Many people in churches believe the gospel is this, that God is love. It, that is in the Bible, though. Okay, I don't want to ignore the fact that 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. That's true. That is a true statement. But notice that it's important to understand that the gospel is not simply, it's not just that God is love. God is love is commonly misinterpreted and and is often misused. It's a popular notion, a popular idea today to talk about God's love and then assume that God's love is His only divine attribute. uh, You kind of get that impression today, don't you? Is God anything else? Of course God is love, but is that all He is? By all means, let's talk about God's love, but we're imbalanced if that's all we ever talk about. Simplistically equating God with love is going to lead to error. It's an imbalance. Uh, Mathematically, think about this. If God equals love, then you can flip that around the other way. Is love, does love equal God? No, of course not. Love doesn't equal God. I mean, if God becomes equated with love, then love has become God. Of course, that's not true. Let's think about it theologically. We, we know that many other things certainly characterize God more than just love. Of course, He's love. But man, we could come up with a huge list of other, God's other attributes and characteristics. He's much more than just love. And so to reduce God or His gospel to just love is actually idolatry. What what you're doing is you're forming God in your mind in this certain way, and God says, do not do that. 
do not make an image of me, whether that is physically or mentally. Either way is idolatry. Number three, the gospel is not simply that Jesus wants to be our friend. Okay, yes, of course Jesus wants to be your friend. But again, it, that's too simplistic. It's, it's much more than that. I mean, have you ever heard that slogan, for example, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship? You ever heard that? By the way, that's certainly true. Christianity is more than a religion. It is a relationship with a living God. That's true. The Bible says God has actually taken us into His family if we are believers and we put our faith in Jesus. He takes us into His family. He, In fact, He adopts us into His family. We become His children. We're no longer children of the devil, of Satan. We become God's children. And so Jesus is, the Bible says, He's not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters. And whoever does the will of the Father... Jesus said, I consider you to be a part of my family. Yet Christianity is not simply a casual friendship with Jesus. Because the gospel is not simply the cultivation of a friendship. It's more than that. It's, it's all about bringing glory to God. Well, a lot could be said about that. Let's move on. Number four. Number four. The gospel is not simply that we should live right. If you do enough reading and enough listening to people on the internet or wherever, you you will find this particular belief preached and taught. And some say the gospel is simply a, a message that you need to change your behavior. Just change your behavior. The good news is seen as just consisting in a set of virtues, a list of do's and don'ts, and if you do that, then you're you're okay. You're living those virtues, you'll be pleasing to God, you'll be helping others, and that's the gospel, according to some people. However, however, if the gospel is just a change in our outward behavior, it's, it's something that you can accomplish on your own, then the gospel then is just reduced to moralism. And it's damning. It, it, it's the very thing that Jesus addressed with the religious people of his day. They were moralist. On the outward, oh, they all seemed to have it together. Jesus condemned them for that, didn't he? He said, oh, on the outside, you look like a whitewashed gravestone. Oh, you look good on the outside, but inwardly, you're stinking, rotten bones. So let's not reduce the gospel to mere moralism. In other words, what we've begun to think the gospel is penetrating no deeper than just the outside. It's just a, a simple renovation of the outside. When in reality, the gospel goes far deeper than just the outside. The gospel penetrates into our hearts. It's life-changing. So, those are... Four things the gospel is not, so you might be saying at this point, then what is the gospel? What is this evangel? What makes someone an evangelical? Well, let's look at some essential elements of the gospel. Again, may I remind you, there's four points, at least four points you need to remember. That Get these in your head, in your heart, to, to help you remember when you're in those situations and you're talking to somebody who doesn't know Jesus what am I going to tell them? Well, you need to at least tell them about God. You need to tell them about man. You need to tell them about Christ. And you need to call for a response. So those are the four points that I try to keep in my mind when I'm talking to people. God, man, Christ, response. If you don't have those written down, you don't know those, get to know them. All right, let me elaborate on those four points. We have God, man, Christ, response. Let's start with the first one, God. What do you need to tell people about God? Well, what does the gospel include? Well, the gospel includes that there's a holy God, and this holy God is both creator as well as our righteous judge. He's both. Well, he's more than that, but you've got to start there. Let's look at some scriptures, a couple on the screen here. Nehemiah 9, verse 6. This is wonderful. Look what God says. This is a quote. 
You are the Lord, you alone. Nehemiah speaking. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. The Lord. You are the Lord. You alone. There is no one. <laughs> Nobody else. You see this idea throughout scriptures. Here's another one. Psalm 98, verse 9 says, The Lord will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So he's creator, and because he's creator, he's going to be your judge. Everybody will be judged by Jesus Christ. Therefore, God has the rightful ownership over us by virtue of the fact that He's the one who created us, and he has the right to punish or reward us. So one of the essential elements of the gospel starts with God. It all starts with him. This holy God is both your creator and your righteous judge. Number two, we come to the second point. It has to do with mankind. What do we need to know about mankind? We need to know, number two, that man was created by God for a specific purpose, and that's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. However, you read Genesis 1 and 2, it, it, the Bible doesn't stop there. When you come to Genesis 3, we find that mankind falls. Man sinned against God by disobeying His law. There was only one thing they weren't supposed to do. One tree out of the whole garden. Isn't that just like us? God gives us all these wonderful things to enjoy, and we want to go do the one little thing that he says not to do. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They sinned against God. They took that fruit, and they ate it. And immediately, the Bible says they started dying. Spiritually, they died. And we see in Genesis 1.27 that God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. And God says, he made us male and female. That's how God created us, male and female. Well, that's how it was in Genesis 1. But look at Romans chapter 3 here. Look what verse 23 says. Romans 3, 23. All right, so if you don't know where Romans is, if you go to your New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then you come to Romans. Okay, so Romans 3, look at verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God made you in his image to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And we fell. We, we, we've fallen. That, that image is marred. I want you to look at another verse in Romans 1. Look what happens as a result of our sin. Look at Romans 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. People suppress the truth. People know the truth, but they are suppressing it. That's what we have done. So, it starts with God. We need to understand our human predicament as we have sinned against this holy God. We've broken His law. But number three, there's a solution. Look at number three here. Christ's death was the substitute payment for the penalty of our sin. And the Bible says Jesus was then buried. And He arose from the grave. Death could not keep Him. He arose from the grave. That's good news. And so his death is God's only provision, by the way, for the forgiveness of your sin, for mankind's sin. And then Jesus arose. Jesus' resurrection then shows that God's wrath was appeased. God's wrath had to be dealt with. And so when Jesus was on the cross, God was spewing out his wrath on his son. Look what Isaiah 53, verse 6 says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's putting our sin, our iniquity, on Jesus. 
Turn over to John 3. This is a wonderful passage. John 3. I want you to see what Jesus says here. John chapter 3. You're familiar with verse 16 already. We don't really need to go there. You know that that's one of the most well-known verses in the world because we see God's love for the world in giving His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Look at verse 17 though. Look at verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I want to jump over to verse 36. There's a lot we could read here. But look at verse 36. This is important. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see in verse 18 that when we're born, we are condemned already. That's the state you are born into. You are born into condemnation. Eternal death, if you will. And so, as verse 36 says, the wrath of God remains on this individual unless they believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And so we must tell people that. We must tell people that. Number four, what else do we tell people? Well, here's, here's an essential element of the gospel. We are called to respond to this good news in repentance and belief. Repentance is literally a change of mind in regard to our sin. Uh, belief has other synonyms such as trust, faith. But the object of that faith is crucial. In other words, what I'm saying here is you, you and I and everybody else must turn away from our sin. We must go the other direction, turn from our sin to God and trust in Jesus Christ alone. By the way, Jesus believed this. Jesus taught this and preached this when he was here on earth. For example, in Mark chapter 1, look what Jesus says when he came into Galilee here and the Bible says, what is he doing when he comes into this region? He's proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus taught that people must change their mind in regard to their sin and there must be a belief in this good news which is all about Jesus. Well, look at another one. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. Now, this is important because there are well-meaning people who claim to be Christians who, who say that repentance is not something Jesus and the apostles taught. Repentance is not necessary for salvation. They, they just dismiss, the, they dismiss these passages. So I want you to clearly see this. Luke chapter 24, verse 46. Again, this is Jesus here. Look what Luke 24, 46 says. So Jesus, in verse 45, He opened, uh, opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then verse 48 says, You are witnesses of these things. And we, we are sent, according to verse 49. We are sent with that message. And if we don't relay that message, then we are false witnesses. Well, how does the Bible itself define the Gospel? We, we've just talked about God, man, Christ response. But if, if I was to ask you, where could you take me or somebody else to the Bible and clearly explain the essential elements of the gospel? Where would you go? 
I hope you would go to 1 Corinthians 15. In my opinion, 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear and is the most concise, most to-the-point passage in the Bible to show the gospel. In fact, I want you to turn there to see it for yourself. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Holy Spirit's using the Apostle Paul here to clearly show us the gospel. The Apostle Paul pointedly says here, this is the gospel. (laughs) You don't have to guess what the gospel is. We don't have to make it up. Because the Bible clearly tells us here. So let's read it. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start verse 1. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the evangel, this good news. Notice he had preached to them, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We'll just stop there. Okay? Let me just highlight a few things that must be essential elements of the Gospel. If someone doesn't believe this, if you haven't believed this, then you are not a Christian. Okay? This is crystal clear from the Scriptures. This is not my opinion. This is what God says. All right? Let's have a look at this, because there's very specific things here that uh, have been outlined for us by the Holy Spirit. Number one, the gospel is a complete message, and it's according to the Scriptures. It's not according to man's wisdom or or anything else. It's it's complete. There's not more to come, and it is found in the Scriptures. Notice it clearly says, according to the Scriptures. In fact, The Holy Spirit mentions that phrase twice. It is according to the Scriptures. By the way, that phrase has two implications I want to highlight for you. Number one, the gospel message is found only in the Scriptures. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit is highlighting for us. You will not find the gospel, this evangel, this good news, anywhere else. It's only in the Holy Bible. In other words, the salvation message is confined exclusively to the Bible. Exclusively to this Bible. The second implication here is that the gospel is found in the totality of Scripture. So the message, this good news, is only in the Bible, but it's found throughout the Bible. Okay, It is according to the Scriptures. And so the whole Bible has something to contribute to the gospel. You will find the gospel all the way from Genesis to the very end, which is Revelation. Jesus said so in Luke 24. Jesus said it's all about him. It included the, those first five books in your Bible, those books of Moses. It included uh, the prophets as well as the writings. So the gospel is a complete message according to the scriptures. Number two, the gospel is about knowing the identity of Jesus. This is crucial because faith must have the right object. Do you understand that? Must have the right object. Paul showcases Christ here as the subject of the gospel in verse 3. Did you notice in verse 3 he says that Christ died for our sins? Verse 4, he's the one who is buried. He's the one who is rising again. The gospel is about Jesus. The good news is all about who Jesus is, and what He did. And we must be clear when we're explaining that to people. See, we're not about... uh, We're not in the business of just simply spewing out some facts or uh, some data. That's, That's not our primary purpose. We are charged with the mandate to reveal the very nature of an infinite God. And so this is important because you need to understand there's many religions and cults and sects who believe in Jesus. 
right? For example, when you talk to a Muslim and you witness to a Muslim, you will find that they believe in Jesus. Have you ever talked to a Muslim about Jesus? They believe in Jesus. But the Jesus they believe in is not the real Jesus. You can go and talk to a Jehovah's Witness. I've done it many times. They also believe in Jesus, but it's not the real Jesus. See, both the Muslims as well as Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was created. Jesus is not eternal. Jesus is not deity. Therefore, they're worshiping a false god. Well, even Catholics, you go and talk to a Roman Catholic, they also believe in Jesus, but their Jesus is different from the Jesus of the Bible. And so you've got to make sure people are identifying with the right Jesus. And you go and talk to a Buddhist or a Hindu, you know, they're quite, they're quite readily accepting Jesus, sometimes anyway, and they'll add Jesus to their multitude of gods. But it doesn't work that way because there's only one Jesus and He is God. So we've got to be crystal clear on our identity of Jesus. Number three, the Gospels all is, is about knowing what Jesus did. So it's not just knowing who He is, but you also need to know what He did. Because again, in, in verses 3 and 4, we see Jesus dying, we see Jesus being buried, we see Jesus rising from the grave. And in verse 3, the death of Christ is of first importance. Now, why did Christ have to die? People need to understand this in order to be saved. People must understand it's according to verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for what? What did He die for? He died for our sins. <laughs> See, we, you and I, all of us, all humanity have broken God's laws. We stand condemned before this holy God. So Christ had to come and die and pay the penalty for sins. And we need to talk about sin when we preach the gospel to unbelievers. Now, I know that's uncomfortable. It's not popular. But in order for people to be receptive to the good news, they have to know there's what? Bad news. Have to know there's bad news for they're willing to accept the good news. You've heard me say this before, not original with me. Let's say you go see the doctor, and the doctor says, okay, hey, you, whatever your name is, you fill in your blank, uh, you need to go through chemotherapy and radiation, and you're going to look at the doctor and say, what? I feel just fine. Why, why would I want to go through chemotherapy and lose all my hair and feel like throwing up all the time and all that disgusting radiation? And stuff? Why would I possibly want to do that? You're, if you're thinking you're well and you're good, and you're healthy, you're not going to do that, are you? So a doctor has to convince you, no, you're not actually healthy. You're actually dying. You have something that's terminal. It's going to kill you. And unless something changes, you will be dead very soon. And if the doctor then convinces you, no, you're actually in a bad situation here, then you're willing to take the solution then, right? As hard as that solution is, you're, you, you might be willing to do that. And so, it's that way spiritually. In order for people to be receptive to that good news, they've got to know there's bad news. So if people think they're good, they're not going to accept the solution. So we also have to tell people what sin is. Because <laughs> people's idea of sin is misconstrued. The Bible says sin's a personal offense against the holy God. Sin is breaking God's law. Every one of us have done that. We've fallen short of His glory. And so we must use God's law to convict them of their sin, just like Jesus did. He would use the Ten Commandments. Say, well, really, you know what? I'm actually a liar. I'm a, an adulterer at heart, and I'm a thief, and I'm, I'm an idolater. I haven't loved God. And because of that, I stand condemned. I've broken His law, and we've got to use this law to convict them of their sin. And people need to know they can't then save themselves from their sin, God has to do that. They must be told that the wages of sin is death and that without the total forgiveness of sin, nobody can please God. Nobody can enter into His heaven because the Holy God doesn't allow sin into His 
heaven. Number four. Number four, the gospel is a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. We must call unbelievers to repent of what? Well, according to verse 3, they need to repent of their sins. They need to change their mind about their sin. The problem is a lot of people love their sin. Jesus mentions that in John 3. You know, in John 3, Jesus said, people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Again, look at what Jesus in Mark 1. What, what is he doing here? Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Mark 1 says. So the gospel is calling people to change their mind about their sin, to see their sin as God sees it, and then to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Number five. The gospel is about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. How often do we include Jesus' resurrection in gospel presentations? Uh, even gospel tracts are woefully inadequate a lot of times. Uh, fortunately, the ones we use do talk about Jesus being buried in, and arising from the grave. Let me encourage you to use those. But we must mention this. In fact, Paul even mentions in Romans 10, verse 9, when, when verse 9 says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God, what? Raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. So it's not just believing Jesus is Lord, but we also have to believe He died for our sins, He was buried, and He arose again. The Gospel is about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We see that in verse 4. He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what the Holy Spirit is telling us here in verse 4. That's what the Apostle Paul's whole argument, by the way, is in the entire chapter, verse chapter 15. The whole chapter is about the resurrection. And it clearly shows us there in chapter 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you know what? There's no Christianity there is no salvation. There's no forgiveness of sins. Your faith is futile. It's empty. It's meaningless. And we might as well shut the doors. We might as well go home because we have no hope. <laughs> That's how serious this is. Our faith is futile without the resurrection. So by rising from the dead, Jesus secured victory over sin, death, hell, Satan. He secured it over this world. And His death secures our eternal salvation. So my friends, the good news is, Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not like the prophet Muhammad. Jesus is not like all these other prophets and people. He arose. He's alive. He's in heaven today. And He's coming again. That's good news. Number six. Of course, the Gospel has to call us to, to a response. And this gospel is appropriated by faith. That's number six. The gospel is appropriated by faith. It's a belief. It's trust in this person. Verse 2, if you look at verse 2, says that the Corinthian Christians were saved. How? Because they believed in the gospel. They believed in this good news. Now let's not forget that the object of faith is vitally important. The object of faith must be in the Jesus of the Bible. It must be the, G the real Jesus. Okay? So those are six vital elements of the Gospel. Now there's some hills that we need to understand that if we ever get to a certain point, we must die on these hills. You ever heard that phrase, hills to die on? There are some hills to die on when it comes to the Bible. When it comes to the Gospel, the Gospel is worth dying for. And we have many brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. Places like North Korea, Nigeria. Brothers and sisters all around the world who are being slaughtered. Who are refusing to deny Jesus Christ. 
guns and swords being put to their heads and necks and saying, deny Jesus, become a Muslim, or become a Hindu, or whatever it is. And they refuse to do so. And they're immediately ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven because these are hills worth dying on. Right? Let me make, let's be crystal clear. There's at least four. Okay? These are essentials of the faith. And in these essentials, we must be unified. In non-essentials, we can be diversified. But in the essentials, there has to be unity. So if you find yourself, or by the way, someone else, denying one of these elements, well, the biblical gospel has then been compromised. Number one, number one, Bible's clear in this, the virgin birth. The virgin birth is an essential element of the faith. You can see that in the Old Testament in places like Isaiah 7, Matthew chapter 1, just to name a few places. In order to become the Messiah, Christ had to become a man. Because you understand, Jesus wasn't always a man. Jesus used to be different than he is now. But if he had a human father, then he would have been tainted by sin and and tainted by its guilt and therefore could have been disqualified from taking the sin upon himself. He could not have become the substitutionary atonement that we needed. So this is an essential of the faith. And there's many who would deny this because they say, well, that's a miracle. (laughs) A a virgin birth is impossible. I know. (laughs) It is without the Holy Spirit doing that work. Number two, the deity of Christ is a hill to die on. It is an essential of the faith. Again, we find that in many places throughout Scripture, clearly showing that Jesus is God. And so we need to understand this, because sin is infinitely heinous. It deserves infinite punishment because of who we've committed the sin against. We've committed our sin against an infinitely holy God. Well, people can bear the wrath of God, when they go to hell, but they can't do it redeemingly. Uh, They will never be saved. And so only that which is essentially infinite then can offer an infinitely valuable sacrifice, something that actually appeases God's wrath, requires the infinite God to do so. And of course, that was Jesus. Number three, substitutionary atonement is an essential of the faith. And, And by substitutionary atonement, I mean Jesus took your place. Jesus actually took our place. We deserve to die. I needed to have those nails go through my wrist. I needed to be nailed on that cross to suffer for my sin, but it would have been inadequate. It required the perfect sacrifice for sin. And so the atonement is absolutely necessary because... God's justice demands that there is punishment for sin. God doesn't overlook sin. The only way God forgives sin is through His Son. So the atonement is necessarily substitutionary because you and I are not able to bear the infinite penalty of sin. Well, number four, last hill. And we could come up with some others, but in regards to the gospel, these are four essentials of the faith. And the fourth one is there's a physical resurrection. Some people like to say there's only a spiritual one. No, Jesus actually arose from the grave bodily. He was buried and He arose. That body that was buried in the tomb came out of the tomb. And that's why when the disciples went there, they saw only grave clothes. There's only grave clothes. His body came out and people saw Him. And you can read about that in well, if you look at verse four or verse five, First Corinthians fifteen, verse five, we people saw Jesus. He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. Verse seven, he appeared to James and all the apostles. And then in verse eight, Paul says, "Jesus appeared to me." The apostle Paul saw Jesus. It was a physical resurrection. People touched Jesus. People saw Jesus eating food. He was real. So it's that resurrected body 
though still bearing the wounds of the cross, is it's what was glorified. It became incorruptible. Christ's physical resurrection is the Father's declaration of victory over death. It's a vindication of Christ's holiness. It's the instrument of our justification. It's the model, by the way, for our own resurrection. Paul goes on to talk about that here in chapter 15. He says, just as Christ arose, you too will one day. In His likeness, you'll be like Him. Well, let me just quickly end with a quote that is, I'm kind of using it in my own heart and thinking about this in regard to our church. It's kind of like a diagnostic. Here, here's the quote. The supreme indictment that you can bring against the church is that such a church lacks in passion and, and compassion for human souls. A church is nothing better than an ethical club if its sympathies for lost souls do not overflow and if it does not go out to seek to point lost souls to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. End quote. I've been convicted by this. I've been convicted by it in my individual life, for my family and for our church. We have so-called dropped the ball. We've lost sight of what are we here for? Well, let me ask you this. How passionate are you about sharing the good news of salvation to the lost? Are you constantly thinking about that? Are you constantly looking at people as God sees them? You know, when you, you go see your workmate tomorrow, your workmate who is an unbeliever, are you going to see them as lost? And if they die in their sin, they spend eternity in hell? Do you see them that way? Do you see them as it's your responsibility God has put you in contact with them to tell them about this good news, this evangel, this gospel. Don't leave any elements out, by the way. It's our responsibility to tell the full, complete gospel in accordance with the Scriptures. God has enabled us to know this gospel and to share it accurately and faithfully.